I feel like I should say, give it up for Kai Dodge. <laughs> do you guys know Kai? He's our new uh, technical arts director. We hired him to do, like, technical stuff, and turns out he can do this too. So, shazam. All right. That's a score. Hey, welcome here. My name's Pastor Jeremy. Um, I'm a little bit weird, as you can see. You're probably looking at my shirt and thinking, wait, this is the guy who last Sunday was wearing like a coat and stuff, and now he looks like this. We don't get it. Well, here's the deal. Uh, I actually got caught up in this tradition. As you can see, there are traditional churches and there are traditional churches. We're a traditional church, and one of the traditions we have is to wear a Hawaiian shirt uh, every Sunday following spring break. And the reason is, I didn't come up with this, but I like it. Not only that, but it's kind of fun to preach casual and comfy. But here's, here's the, the intent behind it. It says, the intent is to have fun and express our hope. Hope for the coming of spring, which in case you didn't realize that it is coming. And in a similar way, hope for the coming of Jesus, which in case you haven't realized it, he is coming. We know that spring will come. It comes a little bit later in Michigan and we know that Jesus will come, uh, be it whatever we think is late or on time or early or whatever, he will come as well. So we violate the, intentionally the rules of fashion in order to express our living hope. So if, if you're reading the newsletter, you saw this, you may be reading the newsletter and you just chose not to wear a Hawaiian shirt today. Okay, fine. Maybe next year we'll have fun. There's probably about three of us who are doing it, so you're not out of the loop. Anyways, today we're starting a new series in the book of Judges, which is a very interesting book. In fact, I think it, it's a phenomenal book. It's a great book. But it's an Old Testament book, so it's a lot different than a lot of stuff you find in the New Testament. In fact, it's one of those books that's really Old Testament. Like, this is the stuff you don't talk about around the dinner table. The stuff that's in this book, if you haven't read it before, is the stuff your mama did not tell you was in the Bible. I mean, this is stuff. It is gory. It is violent. It is way more than PG-13. All the way through, you see gruesome detail about assassinations, battle, deception, sexual immorality, and the like. And if you see someone who in their quiet time looks a little bit like this, that means they're probably reading the book of Judges. And if they don't look like that, they look like this. I mean, it is gross stuff. So why in the world would you choose a sermon series like this, Pastor Jeremy? And I think the short answer to that is this. Not only do you need to be familiar with all of the Bible, but what Judges does in particular is it points us to Jesus. Judges points us to Jesus. Judges points us to Jesus. You're probably going to hear me say that a lot the next few weeks. So get it in your heads now, and I won't have to keep saying it. But here's the thing. Judges points us to Jesus the basic way it flows is this, is you see um, throughout the Old Testament, God is calling a people to himself for the purpose of raising up a Messiah to deliver the entire world. So he has Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob, through the sort of baby boomers, you know, wife wars or whatever, ends up having 12 kids. And those 12 kids become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
through the youngest brother, Joseph, they end up in Egypt, and then they end up enslaved. Moses delivers them. They're traveling through the Sinai Peninsula. They receive the law. They reject God's good promises. God says, okay, turn around, go back. They get another 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. After that generation dies out, then they're coming back into the promised land, no longer under Moses, but instead this time under Joshua. And Joshua's job is to conquer the land and drive out all the immorality and just set up this beautiful city on the hill for the people of God to serve as a shining light throughout all the nations. (laughs) And then there's the book of Judges. And you find out what really happens. And despite the noble intent, the human tendency to rebel and sin and pull away from God uh, sort of wins the day. And over and over again, what you see is this cycle. Here's a uh, graph, or not a graph, uh, an outline of it. But this is really the structural flow of, of judges. But actually, if you look at it, it's pretty cool. It's also the structural flow of life. Like This is not just judges. This is the way it works for us as people. We begin basically by sinning. The book of Judges begins with the people sinning. And then God, in his grace, disciplines his wayward children. And Pastor Gibb did a good job this week earlier to clarify terms with me. This is discipline, not punish. In other words, it's not retributive or it's not meant to harm, but instead it's meant to heal, it's meant to correct, it's meant to bring back and restore. So the whole purpose of the discipline is not just to punish and drive you into the ground, but it's to bring you back. And so you see the people sinning, then God disciplining them. And then when they're disciplined, they go, oh man, we forgot. Wow, what a mistake. Maybe he'll forgive us. And they repent. And then when they do, God is faithful and just to forgive their sins. And he sends them a deliverer. In this book, we call them judges. They're a little bit like tribal chieftains. They're ancient rulers. They're not kings, but sometimes they're priests, sometimes they're prophets, but essentially they're male leaders and sometimes female. We've got a couple female in here as well who are sent to deliver God's people from their oppressors. And then after they do that, they administer justice throughout the land. So these judges are sent as deliverers who come and rescue the people. And then typically there's peace. And then inevitably what happens is when there's peace for a long time, people just lay back, get comfy, don't worry about obeying the commands of the Lord, and inevitably they slip back into sin again. Now that's the people of Judges, and guess what? (laughs) That's the people of us too. I mean, this is the cycle of life, and you will probably find yourself in this cycle somewhere. So we'll look at this cycle throughout the book. We'll say, okay, here's what happened to the people of Israel. But we won't stop there. We'll say, okay, now, here's what happens to us. So what we'll see is this general pattern then. That's the bigger pattern. Here's just the basic pattern how I'm going to break it down. Today, this is the way we'll approach this. You'll see people caving in or giving in to sin. That's step one. And step two is God redeeming them. People mess up, God fixes it. People mess up, God fixes it. Another way that I will refer to this by, it's a big word, but it's just for fun. Cultural capitulation. Cultural capitulation. People capitulate or people give in to the forces around them. There's 
sinful tendencies. Culture is amoral, but sometimes it adopts some things that are immoral. And as a result, people who are just swimming in it and have no idea how to process it, just do it because that's what everybody else is doing. So they give in. That's what's happening to the people of Israel. And I think that's what's happening to us as, as North Americans or Central Americans or Latin Americans. Wherever you live in today's modern world, there's a culture that surrounds you. And if you're not careful, you capitulate, you cave, and then you're stuck in that muck and you need redeemed. So the simple steps is we give in and sin and God fixes it. That's the pattern for today. So we'll look at the people of Israel sinning. And we'll look at the people of North America sinning. And we'll look at the people of Israel being redeemed. And we'll look at the people of North America being redeemed. That's what's going to happen today. So, the call on the people of Israel is to be a holy nation set apart, a city on the hill. Guess what the call on us is as well? To be a holy nation, sort of, not a political or ethnic nation, but a spiritual group of people called together under one king to serve as a light. And so let me read to you then this story in Judges chapter 3, and we'll apply that uh, to our lives. What I've done in this story, it's long, but I'm just going to keep reading it, and I want you to pay attention in whatever way it works for you. So if you brought your Bible, follow in your Bible. If you want to watch the screen, follow on the screen. If you want to close your eyes and just imagine and listen, listen. It's one of the longer readings I'll do in church, but you really have to hear the whole story because it's just crazy, and I don't know any other way to tell it to you. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and he said, hey, you're preaching tomorrow? And I said, yeah. He said, what's the sermon on? I'm like, well, Ehud. He's like, Ehud. And I'm like, he's like, oh, is that that guy who? I'm like, yeah, that's that guy. (laughs) So here is the story of Ehud. Now, what earlier there was a slide that was one through five. You know, you remember those? Sin, then discipline, then repentance, then deliverance, and then peace. I labeled those things throughout this chapter. So you'll see a one, that's not verse one, that refers to that earlier slide, sin. Here's where it is. Here's the pattern playing out. So I want you to see this pattern playing out in this chapter. Everybody got it? All right. This is Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the sin. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho, the one Joshua just conquered. And the people of Israel served Egon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. So there's number two, the discipline. Then, number three, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. (laughs) Oh, man, this is not good. There's the repentance. And number four, the deliverance. Here's Now, this is the longest part of the story, the deliverer. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Notice this detail, a left-handed man. Now, the people of Israel sent tribute by Ehud, or him, to King Eglon of Moab. 
And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, that's a little bit longer than your arm, so like a little bit over, a f- or part of your arm, a little bit longer than a foot. And he bound it on his right thigh underneath his clothes. So it's on his right thigh, he's left-handed. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon, also an important fact, was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. They're bringing lots of stuff. And so it was more than just one guy. So they sent him away. Now, he himself turned back. This is uh, Ehud. Once he got to the idols near Gilgal, he turned back. Comes back to the king. And he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came up to the king as he was sitting alone in the cool of his roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and he had reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into Ehud's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and even the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch And closed the doors of the roof chamber behind them and locked them. Now notice, all the guards are are noticing that all they smell is a little bit of dung in the air. Right? All they smell is the dung. So when Ehud had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Oh, makes sense. Get a little bit of a smell. Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Part of the escape plan. And they waited till they were basically totally embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, eventually they're like, we got to check on this guy. And they took the key and opened them. And there he lay dead on the floor, giving Ehud plenty of time to escape. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond those same idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and then the people of Israel went down with him to the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Now is the moment of opportunity. Everybody's in confusion. What happened to our king? He just got assassinated. If you guys act now, we can do something about it. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan. That's the escape route. They cut him off against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And number five, here it comes, and the land had rest for 80 years. Amen? That's an exciting story. (laughs) I don't know where you're at in your Bible reading plan, but... The book of Judges is a good one. You might have to wade through the law a little bit, like infectious skin diseases. This is kind of tedious. This is not tedious reading. Here's a book that points you to Jesus in a major, major way. Now, when I read that, it probably still sounds a bit foreign to you. You're like the Moabites. Okay, who, what, how, why do I care? Here's the thing. 
If you're a Jewish person back then and you hear Moabites, you're thinking like ISIS or something like that. I mean, bad people. It actually is worse than that. What happens is this. Prior to this time in their history, uh, the Israelite, well, when it was just Abraham, Abram and Lot, Abram uh, went to deliver Lot. Lot was delivered from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a city of complete and total sexual immorality. But what happens is, like so many other times, the, the sins of the culture became the sins of of the person in that setting. And so even though Lot left the city and the city was destroyed, the sin came with Lot. And so what happens is his two daughters who don't have any children decide one day, oh, we're going to be barren and childless, so we got to do something about it. Let's not trust God and wait for the right person. Let's take matters into our own hand. So they get their dad drunk. They sleep with their dad. Uh, on different nights, and then as a result, the first, do- the eldest daughter has a child, and she names him Moab. The second daughter has a child, and she names him Ammon. So you get the Moabites and the Ammonites, people who are descendant of this incestuous relationship. And of course, that's not going well f- with the children of Abram. Or the Israelites. So these people have a long history of hating each other that goes back to their very beginning, and they really even hate each other to this day. Just turn on the news and you will see people fighting in the Middle East, left and right. They do not like each other, and both of them think that they claim the land and yada yada. But at the end of the day, here's what happens in this story the Moabites are oppressing Israel, God is using Moab as a tool to punish his people or, or discipline them in order to bring them back. And as a result, um, they're suffering under the yoke and they cry out to God to be delivered from their bondage. So patterns one through five is basically what I want you to see in this section is that number one, what happens is here are these Moabites and they worship idols and they do child sacrifice and they do all these pagan sexual horrible things and the Israelites, who are supposed to be pure, who are supposed to be a nation set apart for God, just sit down next to them and they're like, hey, what's up? You know, cool, no worries. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Whatever goes for you is good. Whatever goes for me is good. And by the way, your daughter is pretty cute. I got a son who, yeah, all right, sure, no thing. Yeah, we'll come to your church next Sunday and you go to our church next Sunday and that'll work great, (laughs) you know? What happens? For long, their church is gone and they're just sitting with their in laws. That never happens here, right? <laughs> People intermarry, and it's not an interracial thing or anything like that, but it's the idea of being unequally yoked or marrying someone who doesn't believe what you believe, and all of a sudden it creates all kinds of issues. In this case, it's not just a little different, like I'm one form of Christian and I'm another form of Christian. It's like, We are totally different. We completely disagree in every way. And as a result, the Israelites follow after these pagan idolaters and begin to practice their sinful practices. And God says, okay, that's enough. I'm going to send in these people and they are going to crush you until you repent. And when you do, maybe you'll get the message that you are not supposed to intermingle with sin or sinfulness. 
So they give in. God discipline number one, they give in. Number two, God disciplines them. Number three, they repent, cry out to the Lord. And then number three, or four, sorry, he sends a deliverer. The deliverer is Ehud. Ehud slaughters the fattened calf and provides a sacrifice. Just like in a ritual sacrifice, you clean out the innards, and all of a sudden the thing is ready for slaughter. The sacrifice has happened, and then the people are delivered, and they are free for another 80 years. There's their situation. So what then of ours? Well, um, we are surrounded by a sinful pagan culture as well. Um, I think, you know, it's possible, depending on how you interpret history, some people don't all agree on this, but people look at the United States and they said, wow, we used to have some Judeo-Christian values. And then as we watch our social cultural development, all of those are being Challenge, for example, the institution of marriage, etc. And we're coming to a point where a lot of people, like we will minister to people in, in our Go Local outreach and, and we'll drive by a nativity scene. And that person in that ministry will say, what's that? No kidding. They look at a scene of Mary, Jesus, Joseph, baby, and they have no idea who that is. We're moving towards a post-Christian culture like Europe, etc. And so, we see all of this, and all of this is around us. And we're lucky we're living in Midland and yada yada, but it is coming in from the coast and everywhere else. And here we sit, looking at this culture, and a lot of us are probably being taken in just like the Israelites without even realizing it. Well, how so, Pastor Jeremy? Everything you said, I see, right? I recognize that's bad. Well, here's the thing. The devil is not dumb, and he knows that he sticks a red-faced, you know, little demon in front of you. You go, ooh, bad. Stay away from that. That's ugly, scary, Halloween. Ha ha. But he's much more subtle. And so what he does, I think, to our culture to get us to follow after the same sinful practices they did is he will distract us, not with too many bad things, but instead with too many good things. Too many good things can often lead to idolatry just like a bad thing. So we get all these good things around us, and all of a sudden we're distracted from the best thing, and we have stuff like sports and holidays and education and our careers. And before you know it, The real stuff of faith and God and love and life is getting immediately pushed to the side. Let me get really specific here and talk about our culture here in Midland. I think this applies in a lot of places. Let's talk, for example, about sports. Are sports a good thing? Absolutely. They're awesome. I love sports. I want my children to be physically fit. I want them to be active. I want them to be engaged with other people. I want them to learn how to lose well, and I want them to learn how to win well. I want them to be involved in physical activity. Whatever it is, do something. Move around a little bit. It's good. God gave you a body. Use it. I'm happy with sports. But the problem is, is getting to this age now where we start to see that all these travel teams start up and the message is, man, you got to get them on the best teams so they can face the best competition and the best tournaments are on the weekend and we're going to have practices five nights a week and we got to travel all over the place. All of a sudden, I'm a slave to sports. If I follow that, 
I can't serve as a pastor here. Like, it's impossible. There is one sport we looked at, and every single one of their meets are on Sunday. I can't do that. I just can't. But there are so many people that say, yeah, we'll go ahead and do that because we want the best for our kids. Really, that may not be the best for your kid. Sports, busyness, media. Let me want to talk about consumption of TV. I mean, I know there's fun stuff to watch, right? But do you see the commercials? <laughs> Did you watch the Super Bowl? You know, yeah, dilly dilly. That's funny. Okay, I get it. But then there's another one. We're like, hold on, kids. Close your eyes. Doot. Time to turn it off. Not good. <laughs> you know, you're eight and ten, and little boys do not need to be sold that stuff quite yet, ever really. Holidays. Let's apply the same principle. Look, the devil's desires distract you. Not to stick a little red demon in front of you, but let's distract you so you miss it. What are the two most significant holidays of the Christian calendar? What are they? Christmas and Easter. What do we talk about on Christmas and Easter? Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. Right? Christmas and Easter. Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. You think that came from Jesus? You think that's good? Is that going to save you some giant, stupid, six-foot-tall, pink-eared bunny? Do you really think those come to your house and drop off eggs? Why do you tell your kids that? They're going to go off to college, and their philosophy professor is going to say, hey, your parents are the same ones that told you Santa Claus is real and Jesus is real. Do you believe those stupid myths? Let me show you the truth. Let's examine your silly Sunday school stories And see if any of them are real. Walk on water, whatever. I'll tell you what happened on the island of Patmos. He was smoking weed like the rest of us. That's what my college professor said to me. That's where revelation came from, according to Dr. Gosa. Smart, brilliant dude. Long hair, intelligent, admired by all the students. You think those stories are on the same level? Why do you tell them they're real? Yeah, I'm going after that. Ha ha, it's funny, it's cute. I get it. It's different. But if you're really going to tell your kids that those things are real, how do they distinguish? How do they know the difference? Children are so literal. Why? Here's what we do for our kids. I know it's getting personal. I waited until we're far away from from Christmas to do this. We tell them, hey, you know, it's fun to give gifts. We love to give gifts because Jesus is the greatest gift. And so we give gifts. We believe in St. Nicholas. He was a great guy that helped other people and really went out of his way to do so. But this whole thing about Santa Claus, that's a myth. And if your friends believe in it, you don't have to bother them. But we want you to know who really gives gifts. We want you to know who really brings life. And the person who gives gifts is God the Father. And the person who brings life is Jesus Christ. It's not Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. And we're starting with that from day one. So there's no big surprises the whole way. We're telling them the truth. Because we want them to grow up in a home that said, yeah, our parents, they told us the truth. They told us the truth about Jesus. They told us the truth about Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, etc. That's not so bad. You know what? I was talking to someone the other day, non-Christian. They wanted to explain to me how Istar, the pagan deity, turned into Easter, and Christians adopted that, and how you know Christmas trees are pagan festivals, and Christian adopts that. And I'm like, ah, you can destroy the Easter Bunny. You don't destroy my holiday. <laughs> Go for it. I'm glad to give you the Easter Bunny. (laughs) I'm not arguing about the pagan 
deities and their spring rituals and fertility rites, etc. I don't care. I believe in Jesus. And that ain't pagan. <laughs> that's different. And that's why people died. That's why he died. And that's what God did. That's very different than our culture. Our culture is awash in consumerism. You look at how much is spent, the billions of dollars on Halloween and Easter and Christmas. And for the candy we spend on one of those, we could feed an entire continent. We will have to give an account. I don't know what it'll be, but it's not good. All right, I'm going to go for one more. Why not? (laughs) Burn a few of my nine lives today. Here we go. Upward mobility. How about that? We live in Midland, don't we? Great place, right? Excellent roads, high education, you know, all these like social economic standards that you want to measure a good city by, we score really well on. But here's the thing. I think, do I want my kids to have a good education? Absolutely. 100%. I want them to be so educated, they're crazy smart, right? Do I want them educated? Absolutely. Do I want them to do their best? By all means, God gave them their brains and their bodies, and I want them to use them. Don't waste the tool that God has given you. Use it. Do I want you smart, educated? Do I want you to have a good job? Yes. I couldn't work here full time if you guys didn't have good jobs that makes it possible for the pastors to do this. I I agree. I want that. But here's the thing. If you make education, accomplishment, and achievement the ultimate end, then all of a sudden you have sold yourself into slavery and you're bowing down at the altar and selling your children to the goddess of upward mobility. That's wrong. The ultimate thing in life is not to make more money than mom and dad. The ultimate thing in life is not to be smarter than mom and dad. The ultimate thing in life is to bring glory to God, even if it means you take a step down. And that's okay. Downward mobility is okay. In fact, Jesus actually kind of recommends that. Upward mobility is a God. Get rid of it. Kill it. We need someone to come in and stab it right in the gut and let it fall dead flat in its stinky self. We should be different. Very different. If we look exactly like everybody else, something is seriously wrong. We should stand out. To the point where people even think we're weird. Not because we're socially awkward, but because we have a totally different value system. They should say things like, you guys worship rather than travel on the weekends? Why? (laughs) You said no to that opportunity in order to spend more time with your family? Huh? You don't do Easter baskets. What could be sweeter than chocolate? Jesus, maybe. You probably don't even have cable. Guilty. Your tax return, and I'm telling you, I know people. I know at least two people this happened to. Your tax return should look so awkward that it sets off alarm bells with the IRS. They come and question your charitable donations and say, "Um, you need to verify these receipts. We don't believe you. Yeah, actually, we do. We, we, we live beneath our means and give more than most people think we should. <coughs> we're different. We're Christians. And we're just a little bit crazy, and it shows up in all kinds of ways. 
look, guys, we're in culture, so what do we do? Here's, here's what we do. We have two options. One is we can be a sponge. We can sit there and let our culture just wash all over us and soak it up and be no different from anybody else. So when the Holy Spirit rings it out, we drip dirty water just like everything else. Or, instead of a sponge, I know this isn't exactly a sift, but we could be like a sift, like this colander. When all of a sudden, culture is around you, and it has good things and it has bad things, but you want the bad things to go out and you want to keep the good things in, what do you do? You pour it all in one bucket and you filter it through the lens of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And you say, okay, this I drop, this I drop, this I keep in order to shine like lights in a dark world. I want you to be a sift, not a sponge. Don't just soak it in, the culture that surrounds you. Don't soak it, but sort it. Process it and say, yeah, is this good? Will this bring glory to God? Will this help me to love others? Will this help me to serve church? Will this create a legacy in my family? Look at this book. Look at the book of Judges, man. Chapters 1 and 2, it says, you know, here's this awesome generation. And one generation, boom, it dies out. It's gone. All this amazing conquering heroes, Moses, Joshua, battles, disappeared. Don't let that happen to you. Look at what 1 Peter tells you. Very similar message. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How do you live in a dark culture? Well, once you were not a people, but now you're a people. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain or expunge from all of the moral corruption that's around you and wage war against it. Keep your conduct among these people honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Be a sift, not a sponge. Don't suck Soak it up. Sort it out. you got to be different. There's no choice. you got to think about everything that's coming your way. Their cultural capitulation, our cultural capitulation. They cave, we cave. They sin, we sin. God disciplines them. God disciplines us. And hopefully, hopefully when he does, we cry out to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. Deliver me. Give me wisdom. Help me to see. Let me hear that still small voice ringing like a giant alarm clock in my head that says, change the channel. Go away. Stop. Do something different. And then you know what will happen? Same thing to you that happened to them. God will send you a judge, a deliverer. Not a judge like somebody to condemn you. But instead, someone whose job is to liberate and deliver you and administer justice. Ehud, listen to this. You ready? Here's a connection. Ehud walks into Eglon's own house. The strong man. That's why the Bible mocks him and talks about his physical features. He's supposed to be this mighty ruler. He can hardly get up off his couch. The strong man, Eglon. And he is slaughtered and sacrificed. Jesus 
walks into Satan's house, binds him, plunders him, and slaughters him and steals his stuff. That's one of the first things he said he was here to do. Mark chapter 3 says this in verse 26. Satan is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he can plunder his house. Better than Ehud is the lion of Judah, the conquering warrior, the tribal chief, son of David, deliverer, savior, confronting our enemy and delivering God's people from their sin. Here's a pattern. See it again. Where are you? Where are you right there? Right now, you're probably in one of them. Sin? You accepted something you know is wrong and you shouldn't, but you're just going with it because you can't seem to get around it. Is God disciplining you, trying to get your attention? Repent. Repent. And when you do, he promises to deliver you. Then you will have peace. This is not just their story. This is ours. And I want to encourage you today to seek peace. Repent of your sins. Cry out to Jesus. He will come busting through the door, bind the enemy, and set you free. Father, we thank you for our holy Savior, our Deliverer, our Judge, Jesus Christ. We pray that he would come quickly, for we are in captivity, we are in bondage, we are suffering and we have sinned. We need your help. Lord, please forgive us for all of our unrighteousness. Heal us, redeem us, remake us, restore us. Give us wisdom now, Lord, as we go out today and we see things. Help us to know what to do. To sift through the stuff of our culture. To follow closely after you. We are people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. God, help us to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.